First Timothy is where we'll be. First Timothy chapter three. I'm going to finish the chapter this morning. I'm glad you're here this morning. I want to review just real quick. <clears throat> chapter three here. Paul's laid out for us uh, already uh, the two offices within the church, the elder and the deacon. Uh, we saw that the elders are responsible to teach and to preach the word. That's their task. Uh, they also lead uh, spiritually, and they do that through the word of God. Not on their own whims or their own fancy, but through the word of God. But then also there's deacons, and the deacons come alongside the elders, and they come alongside the elders to make sure that ministry is getting done. And they lead by example. They lead in the ministry in that way. And they lead for the church family. And together, as these two offices uh, function, what they do is they help govern the church. And they help govern the church well. Now, what happens, of course, and this happens in all churches, is sin creeps in, doesn't it? And it causes then leadership to not be as effective. It causes leadership to not be the example that it is supposed to be. But just because that happens, what we have to make sure we don't do is throw out then how God has told us to govern the church and how to lead the church just because of sin or just because there have been some bad leaders uh, in the past. No, we need to make sure that we follow the church government, the structures, how a church functions and all that according to the word of God because God gave that to us for a reason. And it matters how we then uh, lead and how a church functions. And that's important to uh, remember, and I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit more, but what we sadly see too often is we allow the culture to dictate how we lead in the church or how the church should look or govern or function, when actually what needs to be done is we do it according to the Word of God, and that exclusively. And so hopefully we will stick with that. Now as Paul lays this out, he, he's given us the qualifications for church leaders, uh, what that should look like. The way that Paul closes this chapter out is by telling us then what the church is. And so uh, what, it, what we see is a really good closing to this chapter reminding us of the importance of the church and what is to be done within the church. And it's so easy for us to get distracted from that about what the church should be doing. Remember, Paul's taught right in this letter, and he was telling Timothy to deal with false teachers uh, within the church. And so again, he's went through leadership, and now he's saying, remember what's important within the church. Right? And he's going to try to set this church here straight again by saying, that, remember who we are. Remember what we do. And he says this at the end of chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. So follow along with me, just read these three verses. It says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar, a buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Uh, we'll just kind of take this uh, verse by verse, but Paul says he wants to come to this church, but he, he says that there might be some delay, and if there is a delay, he's writing here, he says in verses 14 and 15, saying, if there is a delay, 
I'm writing this so that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Paul is, does a very good job, it seems, with church planning in Scripture, but also taking care of churches. And we see that here. Paul has a desire to come to this church that he helps start. Uh, but he knows that maybe I can't get there. If I can't get there, I want to do whatever I can to get word to you to help you as a, as a church. And we really see Paul's heart in this, don't we? He's doing a good job of supporting this church and encouraging this church that, like I said, he helped plant. And there's a lot of work involved in this. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. He doesn't want them to uh, go astray either. And so he's, he's trying to help them uh, with this by this letter saying, if I can't be here, this is the next best thing is I'll give you this letter. But we also see his heart in focusing on this church, that there is one thing that is most important for this church, and it's that they actually act like a church. <clears throat> that they actually be what a church is supposed to be and to do according to what God has laid out. And Paul never seems in his ministry to get sidetracked in this. And he doesn't want the churches to get sidetracked in this either. He wants them to stay focused on no, you are the church, and this is what the church does. And it's urgent. It's an urgent thing for Paul. Because again, he doesn't just say, well, I'll let you know when I get there. Because he's not 100% sure when he's going to get there. But he's saying, this is an urgent matter, and I send this ahead now so that you will know. It is interesting that Paul stresses the importance of this in his letter, isn't it? Of all the things that he might want to encourage this church with, what he wants to show them is how to govern themselves, the leadership, and how they should behave. That just seems kind of off. Seems like there'd be other things that would be a lot more important. But no, this is what he wants to be known. The importance of a church's structure, the importance of how it governs itself, and the importance of the relationships that you find within the body of Christ, within the church. Now there is some debate in this passage, in this little section about what Paul is saying here, is he saying how to behave when you're gathered together in the church building? So as we gather together now, is that what he's talking about? Or is it how to behave as a church family, just generally? Not just when we come together, but generally speaking, how do we behave as a church family? I really think both are implied here in this passage because how we function when we're gathered in worship does impact how we function, I think, outside of worship as well. It will have an impact on how we treat each other, how we function as a body, or how the, how the Bible often puts it, <clears throat> as a family, as the family of Christ together. And so uh, that I, I think, again, both are implied in this passage. And, and later in part of verse 15, we'll see here in a second why Paul says this is so important. As we look at verse 15, the second part of verse 15, I think we can ask this question, and I think this is what Paul answers in this question. The question is this. What is the church? That would be the question that you could ask. What is, what is the church? And Paul gives some pretty big statements here. First he says, it says we're, look, let's just start at the beginning of verse 15. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So let's look at that first. It is the church of the living God. This is a, this is a direct push against the city of Ephesus, what Paul is doing here. Remember, they're in a town with one of the seven great wonders of the world, with a temple to a pagan god, to a, to a god that doesn't really exist. 
But if you remember back in Acts, it was in this town where they got so angry because of Paul's ministry, because it was cutting into business of selling idols, that they wanted to kick Paul out. And so this town was known for their idols and the things that they would worship. And Paul very clearly is reminding this church, you live in a town with a lot of gods, but you have to remember the church of which you are a part of is the only thing that is a part of the living God. Not these fake gods. You are part of the living God. These idols have, have no life in them and you cannot compare them to the living God of God's true church. And the church needs to understand this, particularly this early church, because of the culture of the day. Their culture would have been pushing against them on all fronts, maybe saying, yeah, yeah, you have that God, that's great, and I have this God, and that's great. No, it's not. We have the living God, you don't. You know, or you're, you're telling me you're going to live in Ephesus and not go to the temple, Diana? You're not going to worship there? This is, this is what worship looks like. This is, what, this is what you guys should be doing if you really love God. This is how you should be acting. This is how you should be dressing, all these different things. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. We're not looking at culture. You are the church of the living God, and we must act like that. You see, this church in Ephesus would have been seen as the minority. And as you know, oftentimes when you're in the minority, you're the one who's seen as wrong, right? The majority must be right. The minority must be wrong. And so that church had to feel this. I don't know what their numbers were at the church of Ephesus at the time. But the city was huge. Hundreds of thousands of people in this city. And you might have, what, I don't know, 30, 50, let's say 100. You want to say more? Let's say 1,000. Let's say it was 1,000. There's still a major minority in this city. Seen as an extremely weird group of people who would trust in this guy who just died not too long ago. This is who they're talking about. This is who they're, they're basing their life off of. And now this Paul is coming around and telling them how they're to function and how they're to live, which is totally contrary to what, we're, what we say in culture is supposed to be done. These people are nuts. There's no doubt the people in this church are hearing this. And Paul wants them to know, and he reminds them by this little statement, the church of the living God. He reminds them, you are the church of the only true and living God, the only real God that there is. That's who you are. Don't listen to these outside sources. I think as I say that, you could maybe see how that's kind of starting to apply to us today in our culture. Uh, we're not exactly the majority anymore. Uh, we're not exactly the cool place to be on Sunday morning. It used to be it was a good thing for you to be a part of church. It was a very good thing for our politicians when they were running for an office to say which church they were a part of. That helped get a vote. That's not the case anymore. It doesn't help. They, they don't need that anymore. If you want your business to run well in Monroe County, guess what you don't have to do anymore? You don't have to go to church. But you used to have to do that. For, for a part of a time, I don't know if all of you were here then, but for a part of a time, there were two churches that you really need to be a part of if you wanted to succeed in Monroe. If you were Catholic, you better go to St. Mary's. If you were not Catholic, you better go to Monroe Missionary. Because we were full, and you had more contacts. Well, it was easy. It was easy to be a church member then. It was easy to come here then. But times have changed. It doesn't get you the same benefits. It doesn't get you the same 
looks outside in the community. It's not as easy to have a conversation about church life or what you believe because now you're kind of looked down on. And what I, what I think we need to be reminded of is what this church in Ephesus needs to be reminded of. We as a church fi- family serve the living God. We don't serve the false gods of culture. We come together this morning to worship the living God. We come together this morning to worship Jesus Christ who died for us, who bore our sins, but who triumphantly rose again. And we don't come together to serve a Jesus who's dead. No, we, we serve a Jesus who is alive and well this morning at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is our mediator. He, he is our hope and he is alive. And there's no other faith that has that. There's no other religion that has that. There's no other promise outside in our culture that our world can offer that can say, you serve a living God. They do not have that. The Christian faith is the only one that has that. And I think we need to be reminded of that. We serve the living God. Well, Paul continues on there and he says, a pillar and buttress of the truth, of truth. You see, this is a big statement from Paul and one that we must continue to stand on today. The world fights this statement of truth. The world pushes back on this statement of truth. And this would have been common with the early church as well. As that church was sitting there, and they say we have the truth, it would not have been uncommon for them to hear something like, what is truth? We think maybe that's a modern day question. That is not a modern day question. That's a question that's been going on for a long time. Many today would say there is no such thing as that. Truth is based off of what you think or what you feel. And we would say something very different, would we not? We would say truth comes from the word of God. It is a standard by which we live. And so what is Paul saying here in this statement? Is, is the church the truth? Is he saying that? Or is he saying that the church is supposed to uphold the truth? Because it is hard to tell. He says a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, again, I think it can be both and here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, we see Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, in, in verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Well, the question is, what makes us the light of the world? Well, what makes us the light of the world is Jesus Christ himself. What God has done for us. We're not truth in of ourselves. We're truth of the word of God. That's what we hold up. Yet, we've also been given the truth, and we're called to hold, the tru- hold to it, aren't we? And we're called to tell others about the truth. And this is something I, I hope that we grasp. I hope this is something that you uh, take very seriously. You, ha- you have been given as a Christian, as someone who's a part of the church of the living God, the pillar of truth. You have been given the task by God to tell the world about the truth. Now think about that statement. If you went to work if you went to work tomorrow and your boss came up to you and said, listen, i got a huge task for you. This is really important. I need you to get the word out. I need you to have a meeting with everybody. And they, it needs to be crystal clear with them. This is the direction that the company is going. I need you to lay it out for them. It's, it's very important. It's, it's, very, it's very vital for the direction of our corporation that you nail this meeting and that you get it right. When you leave your boss's office, what are you, you going to think? You, number one, you're going to think, wow, he's entrusted me to this, I would think. 
And you'd be like, I must be important. I must be somebody special. He's given me this task. But then there's also some dread because you're like, he said it's vital to where our company is going that everybody gets this and he's laid that task on me. And now I have to go out and I have to tell everybody at work exactly what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. This is a very important thing that I have to do. And you might even stress about it. You might come home and make life miserable for your family because you're worried about it, whatever it might be. But it would be an important task. And I am guessing you would take it very seriously. Now, I'm not trying to water down that task. That is an important task. And what God calls us to and in the jobs that we have are are very important. But that task with your business, whatever it is, can't even come close to comparing with the fact that God has given us, the church, the truth that the world needs to know. That Christ has come for them and died for their sins so that they could be saved. Not even, not even, it doesn't even come close to compare. I, I think that's really hard for people to hear. I, those of you in the automotive industry, I love talking to you guys. You guys, I, I love you guys. I love hearing you guys tell your stories. But I don't know if you guys know this. If Ford Motor Company, if GM, if Chrysler, if, one of them, if they vanish tomorrow, guess what happens? The sun comes up. It comes up. And we'll go to bed. A lot of us will be a lot poorer if that happens. Don't get me wrong. But people will still have kids and generations will still come and life will still happen and some other business and corporation, guess what, will slide right in and take its spot. And the world will just keep moving. You know, there was a time when Rome thought, what in the world would life be without the Roman Empire? Where is it today? Do you miss it? Do you think about it often? Like, Man, I just wish for those days again. You, you don't. You see, we, we do the things in our life that we, we build up our little things and we think this is what is important. And sadly, what we do is we push aside, actually, as Christians, what is the most important thing is remembering that you are a part of the church of the living God, the pillar of truth in our society. And God, for some reason, has saved you, has forgiven you, and then has told you, go tell people about the truth. Go let them know who I am. And what's so great about this story is God doesn't tell you and then be anxious and nervous about it all the time because I'm putting it on your shoulders. No, he's very clear. He says, I will open their eyes to the truth. I will save them. You're not going to do that. You just go and let them know, let me do the rest. Let me do the work. This is the great privilege that God has given us. It's amazing to think that in God's strategy, in God's plan of everything, Before the foundations of the world, it tells us in Ephesians, God had had chosen what was going to take place, that Jesus would come and die. Before the foundations of the world, and in his plan was not, you know who I'm going to give the truth to? I'm going to give the truth to America. You know who I'm going to give it to? I'm going to give it to Israel. I'm going to give it to Iran. I'm going to give it to whoever. Or he didn't say, you know what? You know who's going to be the most famous person ever? I'm going to give it to Pharaoh. 
I'm going to give it to this athlete who's going to be really big. Everybody in the world's going to know who they are. I'm going to give them the truth. And what they're going to do is then tell everybody because that's the best strategy. That's what's going to work. That wasn't the plan. The plan was, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save people. And in in Corinthians, it says, I'm not going to save the best people. I'm not going to save the greatest people. I'm going to save the weak. And it is them who I'm going to give the truth to. And it is them who's going to go share it. And it is through them that I'm going to use. You see, Israel, when God chose Israel in the Old Testament, they weren't the mighty nation. They were weak. And God said, I choose you. You're going to be the light to other nations. Now, they didn't do a good job with that, did they? But today, as we see in the New Testament, it's the church. It's you, it's, it's me who've been called to take the serious tasks that we have been given as the church. As we watch our culture crumble around us, as we watch our culture fight against us, it is us who has the truth and must hold to the truth and never give in. To understand that God has given us this and we do this, we hold to this truth, yes, selfishly for our good because we believe the Bible to be true. And we believe this to be best for us. But we also hold to this truth for those people who think the truth isn't what they need. But we know what they do. And so we hold to it for them as well. Because God's called us to this. So think about, think about it again. Paul, Paul is saying here in this book so far, he said, this is how you worship. He said, this is how your church should be governed These are the leaders that you should have. And now what he's laying out at the end of verse 3 is this is now what you do. This is how you worship. This is how you're governed. These are your leaders. Now this is what you go and do. Hold on to the truth. Remember, you're the church of the living God. And as we get to verse 16, Paul, some some call this a hymn, but most, most that I've come across actually call this a confession or a creed. They say that what we have here in verse 16 is probably one of the first confessions or creed of the church. And Paul lays it out here in verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. So that question, what is this? This mystery of godliness, this this church's confession. And what we confess is a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery to many. And I say this almost every week, and I say it again. Only the blind eyes of those who are blind can be opened by God and reveal to them the mystery. Only God can do that work. I know you've had conversations with people before, because I've heard many of you talk about it, where you've laid out the claims of our faith, and people look at you like you are just a moron, and you're looking back at them like, no, you're a moron. And they're like, no, you're a moron. You're like, no, you're a moron. And you just don't understand. You're like, how in the world can you not get this? It is a free gift of grace God wants to give you. You're saying no to that? Why? Because, no, no. You're, you're so frustrated, aren't you? I, I've been there before. You're like, how can you not? Come on, man, let it click in. It's because they're blind. And you can't make them see. Only God can do that. And that's the mystery that's being talked about here. It's mysterious to us that God would allow us, the church, to hold these great truths and In fact, he says, give us the keys to the kingdom. It's a mystery. Why would he use me? Why why wouldn't he use somebody else? But no, he's he's chose us. So Paul lays out some very clear statements. There's six lines here. 
Six lines in this passage, and, and we'll go through them real quick. Number one, he says he was manifested in the flesh. Now, if you have the King James Version, it says God was manifested in the flesh. Uh, the, the early manuscripts, I think, allow for either of these, honestly. But both ways, it, it's pointing to the same, the same truth. He was manifested in the flesh. What is Paul talking about there? Well, it's very clearly he's talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ, born in the flesh, yet fully God. God was manifested in the flesh. And so right there in the very first line of the very first creed, it seems, that we have within the church, that in order to be a Christian, these are things you must hold to and believe. The first thing is, you must believe God came in the flesh. Fully God and fully man. That, that's, that's a no-brainer. That's a must-have. And this is essential for our belief, isn't it? That God would do such a thing. Now you try, I, now try to do this. This would be my argument for why God must open the eyes of the blind. You try, I dare you, to try logically to explain to somebody how God can come fully as a man, but also be fully God. Now you do that. I would love for you to explain that to me. Because it's something I just can't comprehend. Oh, I've had plenty of Christians come up to me and try. And maybe some of you will do this after. Don't, but you can try, I guess. <clears throat> and they'll say something like, well, his mind wasn't fully God, but his spirit was fully God. Well, that's a problem, because it says he was fully God. And you're telling me he's not, because his mind isn't. So then he wasn't fully God. Well, no, 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 he is, but he, he isn't. No, no, that's not what it says. It says he was fully God and fully man. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. But salvation just doesn't add up unless he's fully God and fully man. It doesn't work. You can't, you can't separate the two. Many try. Many still do try. But this is a must. It's just a strange contrast, God and flesh. Yet this is exactly what we needed for our salvation. Nothing more, but also nothing less. After that, Paul says, vindicated by the Spirit. In Jesus' life, his power was not based on his humanity. We see his humanity, but his power was always by the Spirit that was within him. As he spoke, people would listen and they would, they would be astonished at what he was saying and how he handled himself. So much so, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 28 and 29, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Well, where did this authority come from? The Spirit. It was the Spirit that was giving the authority. It was the Spirit that was moving and working in the hearts of his people. But it's not just in his teaching that we see him vindicated by the Spirit, but also in his resurrection we see him vindicated by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, Paul says, Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, how? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, this proves that the Spirit vindicated him in his work on this earth. Why? Because the grave couldn't hold him. The grave wasn't allowed to hold him. He didn't deserve the grave. Why? Because sin equals death. There was no sin in him. And so the grave couldn't hold him. And so by the power of the Spirit, he was resurrected. 
in speaking of this verse, an older commentator, he said this. I, I just thought it was good. He said, he who appeared dressed in human flesh was at the same time declared to be the Son of God because the weakness of the flesh did not detract in any way from his glory. That's what Paul's getting at here. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. The fact that he brought on flesh did not in any way minimize his glory. In no way minimized his deity at all. Well, then it goes on. Next one, seen by angels. Now, this one honestly can be a tough one to nail down. But I believe what's being said here is that even the angels witnessed the redemption that was brought because of Jesus Christ. The angels did not know the redemption that was going to happen through Jesus Christ. They were not privy to this, but when they saw it happening, it was witnessed by them, and they were in awe of this. And I think that's what's being said here, that even the angels witnessed this scene. Paul then says, proclaimed among the nations, because of Jesus, no longer is God's salvation only for the people of Israel. It's not just for this one nation that God had chosen, but no, now it is shared to all the nations. That is what we see don't we, when Jesus is raised up on the cross and they, they put that sign above his head and they don't put it in one language, they put it in multiple languages. And it's a declaration for all to see, for all mankind, for all peoples and for all nations. And to be honest with you, as I read this, this should make you the happiest. Because the only reason we're sitting here today is because Jesus came and died for all nations. Because I remind you, I don't think any of us in here, I could be wrong, I don't know every guest, we are not 100% Jew. And so if Christ didn't come for all the nations, we, we wouldn't be here this morning worshiping him. We would not have that privilege. But no, it's proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. As the gospel goes out, God continues to save people. This work has continued for thousands of years now. And the same truth that saved people in 130 A.D. is the same truth that saves people in 2023 A.D. We haven't come up with some new way. There is no new way. It's the truth is the truth is the truth is the truth. And it's still what we have at this very moment. And it still works. And I do have to ask you, do you believe it still works? This is something I have to ask myself sometimes if I'm being honest. Tim, do you believe that it is the gospel that still works? It's something I struggle with. And you say, well, I don't know if you should be preaching to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe you have a good point. But the reason for that is this. I just see a lot of other strategies at time that seem to put more people in pews. I think on myself, I think of a lot of ways that I think would work to get people into this room. And it's not by sharing the gospel. It's other little tricks. It's other little things. That, to be honest with you, seem like a lot more fun than just telling people the gospel message all the time. And I have to ask myself, do you really believe that the gospel still works because your actions will say if you believe or not. And I think that's important for us as a church. Do we believe that as the gospel is proclaimed among the nations, that it still 
will be believed on in this world. Because if we don't believe that, I think we're wasting our time here this morning. I think there's a lot of other things that we could be doing. I know for a fact there's basketball games I'd love to be watching right now. If we don't believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all people, then why are we here? And for me, as I said, how it plays out is I start to think of other strategies that, that just aren't real. And so I'm thankful that this is in here. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. We share this truth of the gospel because we know God uses it. Parents, the gospel is the only thing that can change the heart of your child. You can't beat it into them. You can't moralize them into it. You can't come up with some new strategy that if you force them to read the Bible or if you read the Bible to them every... <clears throat> that's not what's going to work. What's going to work is you sharing the gospel message with them, letting them see that you believe the gospel message. Or your coworkers, your coworkers are not going to be changed by you arguing with them about something. The only thing that can ever change the heart of your coworker is the gospel. And God softening their heart and opening their eyes. That's it. We, we can't do it any other way. And so hopefully we will stay true to the truth of the gospel message. But then the last line, taken up in glory. We see that Jesus came as fully God and fully man. That Jesus died and that he rose again. And here in this section, we end with Jesus ascending on high and being glorified. This last line should make us think about the fact that we, we live in the now and not yet, don't we? we? We live in the time when Jesus is reigning as king, yet we, we don't necessarily see him on the throne. We don't see all of his enemies under his feet at this moment. We know that that is true, but yet there's still sin in the world. There's still suffering. There's still corruption. So we live in this time of, yes, Jesus has ascended, but this last line reminds us, I hope, that those disciples saw him ascend on high. But the Bible promises us that we will see him return again. And that we'll see him return again in all of his glory. And that last time when he ascended on high, he went by himself. But the promise is, the next time that he ascends on high, we go with him. There's no more struggling with cultures or societies. There's no more debating. There's no more philosophy and debates and apologetics. There's no more of that needed anymore. Because one day, the Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And that at the day of judgment, Christ will separate the wheat from the chaff. And that those who are his, whose names have been written in the land books of life, who've been saved by the grace of God, will be glorified just as Christ is glorified. Will be given the inheritance that Christ has been given. It's, it's your inheritance that's his inheritance. That's a great thing to think about. And that's the last line of the creed that we see at the end of chapter 3. Paul says, church family, 
This is how you worship. This is what, this is what it should look like when you guys gather together. These are, these are your leaders. This is how the church should be governed. With pastors, elders, with, with deacons. And by the way, if I delay and I can't get to you, there's one thing I really want to get across to you. You are the church of the living God. You are the pillar and buttress of truth. And here is the truth. He was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. It's almost as if Paul is saying, now go and tell people this. Go be the church. Go have proper order. Go have proper function. Go and be united in Christ. Go love each other how you should love each other. Go proclaim the gospel as you are to proclaim the gospel. And watch then how God works. Be faithful to these things. If you've ever had a question, you know, what is the church and what is the purpose of the church? I hope that we've answered that this morning. But for those of us who are the church, let's, let's be what God is calling us to be here. Let's be the people that God has called us to be. Those who've trusted in Christ fully and who have believed on him and on him alone. And to remember that as a church, and this is vital, that is the only thing we have to give to a lost and dying world. Nothing else. All we have to give them is Jesus. And I want to tell you something. When I say it that way, it sounds like a negative. But all we have to give to the world is everything. Jesus. We might not be able to give them money. We might not be able to find them a place to stay. We might not be able to, to feed them. We might not be able to prop them up in society. We might not be able to, to heal them or, or make them feel good about themselves. There's all kinds of things. We, we just might not be able to do that. But there's one thing I can do for you. I can tell you who it is who can save your soul. And his name is Jesus. This is what I have. It's like an axe, right? When the, when the lame man's needing to be healed, and what did they say? Silver and gold I don't have. I don't have that. They said, but in the name of, of Jesus, I have this. That's what we still have today. We have, we have Jesus, and we know that Jesus is everything. So hopefully, as a church family, we will trust in that and be faithful to that as a church and so hopefully you in your life, you say, well, I don't know how to respond to this message this morning, Pastor Tim. I, I guess I, I don't know either. Uh, number one, I think, would be answering that big question, like I said, I have to ask myself every day, is do you really believe that it's the gospel that's the power? Do you really believe that it's God who is still working? Because I do question that with a lot of Christians. We think that the culture is going down fast, and we're proclaiming everything is over. I think we should be careful with that language. If anybody should be pessimistic in this world, it should be us. It should be, oh yeah, everything's looking really bad, but listen, Jesus is still on the throne. Jesus still saves. And it's not too late for you to fall on your face before him. Will you do that? Do you really believe that? I think would be a fair question. I think if you're struggling that, you should be like the man in the Gospels who would pray to Christ. And would say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because we all struggle at times, don't we, because of sin. 
We all struggle to believe. We all struggle with doubts. But thanks be to God, as we've been saying this whole service, it's not even about my belief. It's not even about my doubt. It's about the work that Christ accomplished for me and his grace that he has given me through faith. So again, how do you respond this morning? I don't know, but that's what we're about to enter into. A time for you to respond to the word of God, however you see fit. We'll sing a song, but I'm going to pray. And then after that, we'll stand and sing and let you to respond how you should. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the reminder of who we are as a church. We are your people. But God, because we are your people, we are the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And as, as Paul says, as the church, this is great indeed, and we get to confess the mystery of godliness, which as your word tells us, as he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. God, help us to never fade away from that. Help us to never trust in our own power, in our own might, in our own definitions of what we think a church should be or what a church should do. Or even as individuals, help us to never be persuaded otherwise of what a Christian should be. Help us to rest in you. Help us to hold to your truth day in and day out. And God, I I pray that we would be faithful to that and we know that you will be faithful. God, we pray that you would open the eyes of the blind. God, I'm sure there's many parents here this morning who are praying desperately that you would open the eyes of their children. Some of those children are 10 years old, teenagers, but others are in their 40s, 50s, maybe even 60s. God, I pray that you would help them to see the truth of the gospel, that you would save them. God, there's some in this room this morning who are thinking of their coworkers, thinking of their neighbors who do not know Jesus. God, I pray that you would help them to see the truth of the gospel. Maybe it's through one of us sharing the gospel with a neighbor or coworker, or or maybe it's some other way. God, I, I don't know what that would be, but you tell us in your word to pray for the lost. You've told us that in Timothy. God, we, we lift them up to you. We, we pray that you would use us here in Monroe County to be a city set on a hill, a light that cannot be hidden. And God, that's not by programs, that's not by strategies, that's by being the church you've called us to be, one that holds to the gospel, who believes that to be the power of salvation. So God, I pray that you would do that. In our meagerness and our small attempts to witness to people, I pray that you would be glorified, that you would work and that you would move to soften hearts that once just seemed impenetrable. So God, as, as a church family, I guess what I'm asking is that you would just help us to be faithful to what you've called us to, nothing more and nothing less, and to never see it as a small task, but to really witness it and see it as it is, as everything. The pillars are what hold the building up. 
This is what you've called us as a church, the pillars of truth. So give us boldness in our witness. Give us strength in our faith. As I said a minute ago, help us in our unbelief to cling to your word day in and day out. God, as we respond to your word, I don't know what that should look like, but I just ask that you would help us to do that. Help us to sing this song as worship to you as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.